You're listening to an episode of the C19 Podcast, a production by scholars from around the world that explores the past, present, and the future through the United States and the long 19th century. We are an official production of C19, the Society of 19th Century Americanists. Subscribe on iTunes, SoundCloud, or wherever you get your podcasts. The opinions expressed in this episode do not reflect the opinions of the respective individuals' employers, nor the official opinions of C19. Pirates. What comes to mind is probably Johnny Depp's Captain Jack Sparrow, navigating by a compass that doesn't point north and piling lies upon lies. Or perhaps, like me, you might be fond of the many terrible pirate jokes that can be found. Why didn't the pirates shower before walking the plank? They planned to wash up on shore three days later. Pirates in popular U.S. culture have become friendly, funny anti-heroes, ones appropriately paired with funny sound effects. Pirates represent freedom. Freedom from following laws and rules. Freedom from social constraints. Oh, and treasure. Lots and lots of treasure. They're even heroes of snack food. And it was when my toddler was eating some cheesy pirate's booty that I first became really interested in pirates. Hi. My name is Lydia G. Fash, and I'm an assistant professor of English at Simmons University in Boston, Massachusetts. My first book, The Sketch, The Tale, and the Beginnings of American Literature, was about 19th century short fiction. But my colleagues and students know I have a real thing for pirates. I love a good pirate joke. But pirates aren't just funny outlaws. Pirates are major figures in an early modern global working class. This idea comes from labor historians Marcus Redeker and Peter Leinbaugh. With increased European colonization of the Americas in the early 17th century, more and more ships carry raw materials to Europe and then transport back manufactured goods to the Americas. Slavers are also snatching humans from Africa and yanking them across the ocean. Goods and people move east and west, north and south, connecting continents with trails of money. In this way, we develop a world economy. Then pirates appear to resist the merchants, monarchs, and masters who fashion that exploitative world order. Pirates mixed and mingled with people of many kinds, making those people part of their piratical bands. Then they adopted egalitarian pirate codes. Black Bart's pirate code read in part, Every man has a vote in affairs of moment, has equal title to the fresh provisions or strong liquors at any time seized. Every man to be called fairly in turn, by list, for his share of prizes. No man to talk of breaking up their way of living, till each had shared one thousand pounds. Pirates held goods in common, and made joint decisions. They gave pensions to those who were wounded, and they could depose their leader, if necessary. In a certain view of light, Pirates were highly functional socialist communities. But Sharinda Balanchundran Oruela says there's more to it than just how pirates shared booty and interrupted commerce. By making global trade so risky for merchants, pirates challenged property ownership itself. That, in turn, called into question the value of citizenship. 
If the government couldn't keep property secure, what good would citizenship in a capitalistic democracy anyway? Following this line of argument, it's convenient to think of pirates as ideological opposites to capitalism. But pirates were capitalists of a sort themselves. They traded their stolen goods in cities like 17th century Boston, and they were all about getting rich. So maybe it's not surprising that 18th and 19th century U.S. readers wove pirates into ballads and stories about the workings of capitalism. Pirate figures were a means to expressing the inequities central to capitalism. This podcast has four acts, each one a story about literary pirates and how they served to help singers, readers, and writers navigate the excesses of U.S. capitalism. In Act 1, I talk about how sailors used pirates to complain about the brutal treatment they suffered to maximize their captain's profit. In Act 2, I show that the rising middle class thought of pirates when frustrated with being poor. In Act 3, pirates help readers imagine the mythic figure of the U.S. cowboy. Act 4 takes a different tact by showing that the power of these other literary representations made calling enslavers pirates an ineffective, though attempted, attack on slavery. In all these ways, pirates became not a challenge to the U.S. system of capitalism, but an aid to its maintenance. Pirates helped readers, singers, and critics endure. They helped them dream without acting. And when abolitionists tried to improve capitalism with piratical rhetoric to end slavery, they found the words had little effect. Act 1. The Dying Words of Captain Kidd What did the ocean say to the dying pirate? Nothing. Just wait. The golden age of sail. It was the years before steam power and steel changed shipping, and wind-powered vessels were the machines of the world economy. Any ocean journey, all major cargo transport, happened by ship. And the gears of that ship? Those were the common sailors, the forecastle hands, the jack tars. They scaled the masts. They trimmed the sails, and they kept the watch. If you're listening to this podcast inside your house or apartment, being outside working in fresh ocean air might sound pretty good, but the life of a forecastle hand depended hugely on the temperament of his officers, and many were cruel. Captains and officers regularly gave lashings, including with the dreaded cat-o'-nine-tails. Nine knotted cords attached to a handle designed to raise multiple wounds with each stroke. It was painful, and people could be and were sometimes whipped to death. Sailors were lashed for complaining, for not being quick at a job, for not doing a job well enough, or for looking the wrong way at an officer. In his memorably titled To Swear Like a Sailor, Paul Gillia tells of one poor fellow named Joshua Last, who was whipped for trying to put on a safety harness before going aloft in a storm. In her discussion of sailor autobiographies, literary critic Myra Glenn assembles a catalog of other horrible incidents. To take just three, Roland Gould received nine lashes for having a dirty hammock, as if he should have hoofed it over to a laundromat. Poor John Dunford had fistfuls of his beard pulled out by an angry captain, and a lieutenant knocked out two of James McLean's teeth. Jack Tar could do little about all this brutality. If he complained, he was beaten. 
and the punishments could be worse, though uncommon by the later 18th century, keel-hauling, where a man was dragged underneath the length of the hull, existed as a form of maritime discipline. Those who didn't drown during the keel-hauling itself frequently died of infections from lacerations all over their bodies, a result of the sharp barnacles that crusted the ship's hull. There was also just straight-up executions. If accused of murder or mutiny and found guilty by an on-deck court-martial, sailors were hanged from the yardarm. A lithograph of the USS Summers from the 1840s shows two small, dark bodies swinging from the yardarm under an unfurled U.S. flag. They had been put to death for plotting a mutiny. Surrounded by violence and the threat of violence, sailors sang. The singing helped coordinate their shipboard work. Richard Henry Dana, Jr., author of the bestseller Two Years Before the Mast, said that sailors can't pull lines in time or pull with a will without a tune. Ballads would also have been part of the shipboard entertainment, so a captain wouldn't have thought twice about hearing his crew in song. Singing was thus possibly the only acceptable way for sailors to complain about shipboard brutality. In the dying words of Captain Kidd, complain they did, the ballad started out as a roughly accurate account of the pirate captain William Kidd's life. Kidd took a French ship flying false colors and was responsible for the death of his gunner, William Moore. So, in 1701, the Lord Admiralty hanged him below the high tide line of the Thames. Twice. The first time the rope broke. When U.S. seamen sang of Kidd, they weren't interested in the mishap at his execution or in the way that he maintained his innocence. They didn't see him as a hero set on overturning a capitalistic world order. Rather, Kidd became a symbol of the officers who treated them badly and of the greed that encouraged them to do so. Kidd became a form of protest not against capitalism itself, but against a certain behavior allowed within capitalism. Here's the ballad's opening, sung by David Hildebrand. You captains brave and bold, hear our cries, hear our cries. You captains brave and bold, hear our cries. You captains brave and bold, though you seem uncontrolled. Don't for the sake of gold lose your souls, lose your souls. Don't for the sake of gold lose your souls. In a Faustian bargain, these captains, model actors of capitalism, trade their souls for gold. The result is the brutal murder of poor William Moore. I murdered William Moore and left him in his gore. The ballad replays the murder again in the next stanza. There, William Moore is unnamed. He becomes an everyman. And being cruel still, my gunner I did kill, and his precious blood did spill, as I sailed, as I sailed, and his precious blood did spill, as I sailed. The kid of the ballad isn't very bothered by his crime. His mate tells him to repent, but kid can't feel truly sorry for his deeds. Damnation's my just lot, as I sailed. The cruelty is seemingly rewarded. Kid seizes three ships from Spain and then three ships from France. He's rolling in the dough. 
I'd ninety bars of gold and dollars manifold, with riches uncontrolled, as I sailed, as I sailed, with riches uncontrolled, as I sailed. Note that the word uncontrolled repeats from the ballad's beginning. Kids' riches are uncontrolled, just like the captain's souls were uncontrolled. The ballad makes clear that shipboard brutality springs from the avarice baked into a capitalistic system. It is that greed that makes captains want to sail faster, carry more cargo, and reap more profit. It was that greed that made captains consider jack tar to be expendable and disposable, a similar logic to that which underpinned slavery. While most sailors were not enslaved, they complained that their treatment lowered them to that level. Richard Dana, Jr. recalled a moment when one sailor objected to being flogged by declaring, in updated racial language, I'm no black slave. His captain replied, then I'll make you one. U.S. sailors transformed a British ballad called Captain Kidd's Farewell to the Seas into the very U.S. production of The Dying Words of Captain Kidd. They started with the historic Captain William Kidd and ended up with a fictional Captain Robert Kidd, who helped vent frustration at the brutality within shipping. Once the lyrics were set, though, it wasn't just sailors who sang of the capitalistic mistreatment and greed embodied in the pirate captain's story. According to William Bonner, the ballad was sung across English-speaking North America, from Mississippi to Nova Scotia, and from the U.S. West to U.S. ships. The lyrics were stable by 1790 and remained popular through most of the 19th century, sold by printers like Nathaniel Coverley to sailors, peddlers, sex workers, and other working-class folk. Captain Kidd wanted his 90 bars of gold, and in pursuit of those riches, he lost his soul and murdered his gunner. Singing of that excess and cruelty helped U.S. sailors and others continue on under capitalism. Act Two, Buried Treasure. How did the pirate get his Jolly Roger so cheaply? He bought it on a sale. What happened to Captain Kidd's treasure? People say he buried it. In 1843, in a story called The Gold Bug, Edgar Allan Poe, our favorite gothic author, taught readers how to find and dig it up. In March of 1843, Poe was, like usual, hard up for cash. His letters show his jockeying for a government appointment, badgering James Russell Lowell for an overdue payment, and begging friends for loans. On March 10th, John Hill Hewitt ran into a seedy and woebegone Poe on the street. Poe asked for 50 cents so he could eat. Desperate for money, Poe took note when the Philadelphia Dollar newspaper advertised a story contest with a $100 first prize. He felt sure his recently written gold bug could win. There was only one problem. Poe had already sold the story to George Graham for $52. Somehow, Poe retrieved the tale, sent it to the Dollar newspaper, and on June 16th, the Dollar announced the gold bug had won. Poe had exchanged Graham's $52 payment for a $100 prize. He had riddled out a way to success and put $48 more in his pocket, a hefty sum for someone who had recently begged two quarters from an acquaintance. Poe had bet 
and he had won. Solving a puzzle for monetary gain is the plot of the gold bug. William Legrand, the scion of a family who has lost its fortune, happens upon a strange golden beetle when walking upon the beaches of Sullivan Island, South Carolina. Legrand draws the bug for the narrator on a scrap of found parchment. Well, this is a strange scarabaeus, I must confess. New to me, never saw anything like it before, unless it was a skull or death's head, which more nearly resembles than anything else that has come into my observation. Legrand re-examines the parchment and realizes that there is, in fact, the image of a death's head on the obverse. Then, when the parchment gets close to a fire, Legrand sees an image of a skull appear. The ink is heat-sensitive, and when fully revealed, shows a coded message and a picture of a baby goat. A kid, representing the pirate Captain Kid. It is at this point where Legrand starts sounding suspiciously like Poe, and boasting of his ability with abstruse cryptograms. Two years before the gold bug, Poe invited the readers of Grams to submit ciphers for him to solve. Poe then declared, Out of perhaps 100 ciphers altogether received, there was only one which we did not immediately succeed in resolving. This one we demonstrated to be an imposition, that is to say, we fully proved it a jargon of random characters, having no meaning whatever. Poe bragged in a private letter around the same time, Nothing intelligible can be written which, with time, I cannot decipher. What is important is outsmarting the readers, deciphering the puzzles, cracking the code of capitalism. Like Poe would have done, Legrand painstakingly decodes the jumble of characters into a set of directions. A good glass in the bishop's hostel in the devil's seat 41 degrees in 13 minutes, northeast and by north. Main branch, 7th limb, east side. Shoot from the left eye of the death's head, a beeline from the tree through the shot, 50 feet out. Legrand then takes Jupiter, his enslaved man, and the narrator to a particular tree. Forced by his enslaver, Jupiter scales the tree and drops the gold bug attached to a string through the left eye socket of a skull nailed to the tree branch. Where it lands, they all dig. Twice. The first time, Jupiter is confused right and left. And my, what they find! Under a mass of human bones is an oblong chest of wood with bands of wrought iron and filled with a treasure of incalculable value. A confused heap of gold and jewels. Upon full accounting of the treasure, the three have more than $450,000 in French, Spanish, and German gold with a few English guineas, 110 diamonds, 18 rubies, 310 emeralds, 21 sapphires, one opal, and a vast quantity of solid gold ornaments including rings, earrings, censers, crucifixes, and watches. The entire hall is worth more than a million and a half dollars in 1843 money. The story doesn't net Poe nearly that much, but along with The Raven, it became his most popular written work. The public ledger reported on the brisk sale of the story when it first was published. A year later, Poe would claim that more than 300,000 copies of the tale had sold. The popularity had much to do with how the story talked about money and framed the problems of capitalism. Both topics were much on people's minds during the recession that followed the Panic of 1837. 
When the charter on the second bank of the United States ran out, smaller local banks were chartered and started printing money and making loans. A species shortage followed. Banks collapsed. People were left holding paper money that had no value. The resulting depression lasted into the mid-1840s. As Terence Whelan points out, the dollar newspaper, which had money in its very title, knew that people were thinking about funds and how to solve the riddle of monetary success. An 1845 review noted that Poe chose the finding of money as the most popular thesis he could come up with for his story. But importantly, this finding isn't about sheer dumb luck. It's about savvy. Legrand restores his family's economic position because he can decipher kids' code. Pirate treasure becomes the reward that any of us might gain, as long as we are smart enough. Buried gold remains a powerful cultural idea. Pirate treasure shows up in tales like Harriet Beecher Stowe's Captain Kidd's Money, novels like Treasure Island, and films like The Pirates of the Caribbean. In 1951, Gerald Hurley counted 250 buried treasure stories in the United States. These weren't fictional tales like Poe's or Stowe's. These were accounts of hidden treasure that communities actually believed. Some of them are about kids' own treasure, which people are still digging for. The Curse of Oak Island, in fact, is a contemporary reality TV show about treasure hunters seeking kids' riches in Nova Scotia. Buried gold became the way that 19th century victims of bank failures and capitalistic greed might write the economic ledger. Like with the modern-day lottery, the promise and possibility of windfall allays frustrations with capitalism. If anyone, as long as they are smart enough, as long as they are perseverant, can find buried treasure, then capitalism, even with its gross inequalities, starts to seem fair. Act 3. The Great Western Land Pirate. Or once again, all together and with feeling. What's the difference between a hungry pirate and a drunken pirate? One has a rumbling tummy, and the other is a tumbling rummy. In the 1830s and 1840s, John Merle led a large band of highwaymen and desperados. According to an 1835 pamphlet by Virgil A. Stewart, writing as Augustus Q. Walton, Merle and his gang jumped travelers, swindled gentlemen, counterfeited coin, and stole and resold enslaved people throughout the South. Merle himself was both subtle and daring, and one of his favorite tricks was to dress as a traveling preacher and have his confederates steal the congregation's horses during his sermon. He also liked to pass false bills when dressed as a man of the cloth, since he knew he'd be met with less suspicion. For these and other deeds, Stuart called Merle the Great Western Land Pirate. Mark Twain certainly thought of him as great. Jesse James was a retail rascal, but Merle, what a James and his half-dozen vulgar rascals compared with his stately old-time criminal, with his sermons, his meditated insurrections, his city captures, and his majestic following of ten hundred men sworn to do his evil will. Merle is murderous and evil, but he's also principled. He identifies his foes and targets them directly. As he tells Stuart, I look on the American people as my common enemy. They've disgraced me and they can do no more. My life is nothing to me and it shall be spent as their devoted enemy. 
How has the U.S. disgraced Merle? Merle isn't explicit, but his disgrace seems partly to come from his conviction for stealing horses. Along with a three-year stint in jail, the judge ordered Merle to be publicly whipped, a humiliation that links this great Western land pirate back to our forecastle hands. Merle's disgrace might also be related to his poverty. When Stewart expands his account of Merle's life, he talks about the privation of Merle's childhood, privation that encourages Merle's theft and eventual highwayman life. It is with this anger at the United States that Merle directs his gang to foment a slave insurrection that spontaneously will arise across all slave states at once. His affiliates are involved in recruiting enslaved peoples and passing the plan along. On December 25, 1835, a day on which enslaved people could commonly gather without suspicion, the rebellion would begin and spread from plantation to plantation. Southern whites would be murdered and their property seized by Merle's organization and the newly freed people who had risen up. The rebellion would remake the social order with white vagabonds as the landed gentry and the formerly enslaved as property owners. Merle wasn't an abolitionist even as he sought to foment a rebellion. His were the acts of a pirate who wanted not to eliminate capitalism as a defining social order or slavery as an essential part of US capitalism, but rather to flip it on its head. Merle wanted to take the wealth of the haves and give it to the have-nots. By July 1835, the pamphlet's account of a slave insurrection felt frighteningly prescient. In the west central part of Mississippi, a place where blacks outnumbered whites 50 to 1, rumors began circulating about a slave rebellion led by white men. Under torture, one white man confessed himself part of Merle's gang and indeed a member of the Grand Council that led the ruffians. Lynchings followed of both itinerant whites and enslaved blacks, and everyone talked about Walton's account of John A. Merle, the great Western land pirate. By the 1840s, US readers were looking west to the land the US government was hungry to acquire. Eastern seaboard readers were still connected to Europe through oceanic trade, but the literary imagination was shifting towards territories beyond the Appalachians. Pirates made this jump too, from watery figures to terrestrial brigands, from Captain Kidd to John Merle, from sea pirate to land pirate. Merle is an early figure in a long line of western desperados, of cowboys who ride hard and fight harder. These men live on the edges of capitalism, rustling horses, robbing stagecoaches, and swindling merchants. They are wanted, dead or alive, for their disruption to trade and calm. But they also often exemplify a certain honor and nobility precisely because they are on the edges of society, highlighting the greed and corruption of lived US capitalism. while also wrestling the mythic frontier terrestrial now instead of oceanic into a world formed by their desires through the cowboy the pirate becomes a quintessential us figure of freedom and independence and a mainstay of us literature
Act 4. Enslavement. What's a pirate's favorite color? Gold. The various literary afterlives of pirates that I've described in the first three acts formed a powerful link between pirates and freedom, independence, and capitalistic resistance. These positive associations masked one of the horrible, real activities of historic pirates, human trafficking. For though there's evidence that some during the golden age of piracy had multiracial crews, there is also evidence that many pirates would capture enslaved people and treat them as just another type of cargo, something to resell for profit. In Act 2, I talked about buried treasure and Poe's tale, The Gold Bug. I want to return to the story for a moment because Poe's portrayal of the enslaved Jupiter, the man made to climb the tree and drop a string tied to a gold beetle through a skull's eye socket, is just dreadful. Jupiter is mocked and attacked and threatened. Such a representation fits with reading Poe's story as a manual for winning at capitalism, for the initially fragile colonial and early national U.S. economies were predicated on the wealth generation of slavery. It was robbery of the work, of the humanity, and of the bodies of people of African descent, first on the high seas and then on the land. Though he was himself a slaveholder and father of multiple enslaved children, Thomas Jefferson called slavery a form of piratical warfare in a draft passage of the Declaration of Independence. Jefferson wrote, King George has waged cruel war against human nature itself, violating its most sacred rights of life and liberty in the persons of a distant people who never offended him, captivating and carrying them into slavery in another hemisphere or to incur miserable death in their transportation thither. This piratical warfare, the opprobrium of infidel powers, is the warfare of the Christian king of Great Britain. The passage was stricken, of course, because southern colonies were unwilling to end slavery. And yet Jefferson's point that the transatlantic commerce and people was piratical would become legally true in 1808. On January 1st of that year, the earliest date allowed by the Constitution, the importation of enslaved peoples to the United States was banned. The transatlantic slave trade legally became piracy. But federal punishments for those who continued to import slaves weren't stiff, and the feds weren't inclined to enforce laws against the trade. So slave traders continued to work. W.E.B. Du Bois believed that between 13,000 and 15,000 illegally imported enslaved people came in the late 1810s. Modern scholars guesstimate that the number was between 1,000 and 14,000 per year. This huge range shows how little we know. What is certain, though, is only 74 cases were tried relating to international slave trading between 1837 and 1860. Few people were convicted and only one person was ever executed. In 1862, President Lincoln refused to commute the death sentence for a Maine slave trader named Nathaniel Gordon. Just 28, Gordon had taken his 500-ton vessel, the Erie, from Cuba to the mouth of the Congo. There he traded liquor and foodstuff for 897 Africans and set sail for Cuba. When captured by a Union warship, the enslaved people on Gordon's boat were freed and transported to Monrovia, Liberia, and then Gordon was taken to New York and indicted for piracy. He was publicly hanged. Harper's Weekly recorded the event. 
On Friday, 21st February, in New York City, Nathaniel Gordon was hung for being engaged in the slave trade. For 40 years, the slave trade has been pronounced piracy by law, and to engage in it has been a capital offense. But the symphony of the government and its officials has so often been on the side of the criminal, and it seems so absurd to hang a man for doing at sea, which, in half the union, is done daily without censure on land, that no one has ever been punished under the act. The administration of Mr. Lincoln has turned over a new leaf in this respect. The hanging of Gordon is an event in the history of our country. Piracy was related to slavery because both were fundamentally about stealing. Nathaniel Gordon stole 897 Africans from Africa and crammed them into his ship so tightly that 18 died of suffocation. In just over two weeks, all of the Africans had lost their ability to walk. International slave trading legally became piracy, and the abolitionists extended this idea to the domestic slave trade. When Frederick Douglass compared slave traders to pirates in his 1845 narrative, he does so to highlight their disgusting and singular focus on the profit Douglass and his friends represent and create for white enslavers. Douglass writes, We had been in jail scarcely 20 minutes when a swarm of slave traders and agents for slave traders flocked into jail to look at us and to ascertain if we were for sale. Such a set of beings I never saw before. I felt myself surrounded by so many fiends from perdition. A band of pirates never looked more like their father, the devil. They laughed and grinned over us, saying, Ah, my boys, we have got you, haven't we? Slavery, like piracy, was not opposed to the free market and the myth of pulling oneself up by one's bootstraps. Rather, piracy was integral to settler colonialism and the capitalism it produced, from the early days when colonies relied on pirates for supplies to a 19th century U.S., which piratically continued to extract labor and profit from enslaved humans. By the 19th century, abolitionists who called enslavers pirates were working against a literary history that had made pirates appealing. Arr, shiver me timbers. Pirate characters allowed for momentary escapes, for hopes of buried treasure. They did not require the hard work of anti-racism and abolition. Coda. What happened when Bluebeard fell into the Red Sea? He was marooned. Into the 19th century, piratical magazines and books were read far and wide, including by apprehended pirates and whalers. One group of mutineers hauled into a New Orleanian courtroom had to answer, as evidence against them, why they had a copy of an anthology of pirate biographies called The Pirate's Own Book. And Scrimshaw of the cover art of the 1845 pamphlet novel Fanny Campbell, The Female Pirate Captain, shows that sailors relied on pirate stories for visual culture, and surely, too, for reading. My story here has been twofold. On the one hand, pirates helped us endure corporal punishment, terrible working conditions, and economic inequality. They allowed us to dream of finding treasure and of resisting unreasonable captains. Integral to how we accept the vagaries of U.S. capitalism, these ocean-going pirates morph into the Western bandits, the cowboys of page and screen. Our fascination with these outlaws endures precisely because they provide a steam release for frustrations with capitalism, 
a steam release that allows for a fantasy of change without the need to enact it. The second line of this story is about that failure to act. The transatlantic slave trade was piracy after 1808, and abolitionists called enslavers pirates in hope of ending slavery. But literary culture had taken pirate figures away from the real-life brigands of the 17th century and made them into the exciting heroes of the 19th. Accusations of piracy resulted in few prosecutions and little political action against slavery until the Civil War. Was the racism of the legal system and the federal bureaucracy aided by the increasingly appealing figuration of literary pirates? I think so. Thank you for listening, and thank you to David Hildebrand from the Colonial Music Institute for generously allowing me to include his ballad singing. Find more of his work online at the American Antiquarian Society's Isaiah Thomas Broadside Ballads Project. Thank you also to Ray Carre for his interpretation of Frederick Douglass and for reading from The Gold Bug. Thank you too to my sadly socially distanced brother, Ben Garaldi, and to my COVID podmate, Nate Fash, for all the other voices, and to my two sons, Leo and Nico, for the jokes and the giggling that have kept quarantine more bearable. Finally, my gratitude to the good people at freesound.org, including CG Efex for the pirate ship at bay, D Dollar for the execution march, and SoundScalpel.com for the water splash. Thank you for listening to the C19 Podcast. Enjoyed this episode? Have thoughts? Use the hashtag C19Podcast or get in touch with us at C19Podcast at gmail.com. Have an idea for an episode? Check out our CFP on the C19 website for more details on submitting a proposal.